Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me this week is Robin Conroy. Welcome back Hello. to the show, Robin. <laughs> it's good to be back. Obviously, you're back on because I want to talk about animated films. And Robin is very knowledgeable about many things in the world. But anytime I want to talk about animated films, I just want to bring her on. <laughs> yes, it is a pretty good level of expertise there from me. <laughs> So yeah, what we wanted to talk about is a really great film for Lent. And I think in the last episode we were talking a bit about martyrdom and things like that. And this is definitely a more lighthearted, more fun kind of episode, but also still super relevant for Lent. We want to talk about the 1998 DreamWorks film, The Prince of Egypt, which if you haven't heard of it, is an animated movie which represents the start of the Exodus story, the story of Moses and the Exodus out of Egypt, as you would expect. And it's just a fantastic film. And I just thought it would be great to do a whole episode on it. Absolutely. It's uh, it's very much worthy of it. There's there's a lot in it. And it's, uh, it's really exceptional. I hadn't watched it um, kind of since I was a child. And I kind of rewatched it in anticipation of this and was just blown away really honestly it was even better than my childhood memory of it had been which is uh, always a good sign you know yeah definitely I think we're gonna get into this when we're talking about it but it's a real film of like scale and scope I mean I love Disney movies and there's certainly examples of that that I can point to in Disney movies but it it definitely was at the time it was DreamWorks really sort of hitting back and trying to create something that sort of went even beyond the scope of a Disney movie into what would be an actual epic. Um, Absolutely. And, like yeah. it's really it's really recalling like those sort of like MGM's 1950s massive cast of thousands kind of epics like you're saying which is exciting to see in animated form. Yeah and I know it did quite well at the box office at the time and it's been very well received when people have seen it. It weirdly has kind of dropped off people's radars. It's a little bit underappreciated, underlooked and I know like there's obviously in terms of like frame of reference it is a major studio movie it is it's not like some niche little love project that one person worked on for 20 years type thing in terms of being overlooked but it definitely you know I think there's a lot of lists on the internet of best animated films and they have a lot of stuff that I, I don't think would stand the test of time in the way that Prince of Egypt does and yeah I think it just gets a little bit forgotten I think people associate DreamWorks more with the kind of bombastic silly films and you know there's a place for them too I love Shrek I think that's a great film like <laughs> there are plenty of really great fun DreamWorks movies but I think as a studio they didn't really necessarily stay with that kind of epic scope in the same way so people I think it just like slips people's memories a little bit. Yeah absolutely like DreamWorks have kind of an interesting they're not as easily fit into a box as say Disney or Pixar are in that they really do do a lot of different kinds of things and so yeah I feel like it's almost something that people aren't expecting going into a DreamWorks film to have something that's taken as seriously as it is in this film, you know? And also just in animation in general, I think people often aren't expecting to have something taken seriously, to have a subject matter, like, not just use as sort of a template for a fantastical story, but actually taken with a lot of weight and a lot of dignity. And I think that this film really opens up, like, the, the, the title card kind of, like, indicates the kind of tone that they're going to set across it. Yeah, I think I'll just read that out because I think that's yeah, important. Like this is this is just a title card that appears at the start of the movie and I think it really sets the tone for everything. It, it's just fairly informative, but it says, the motion picture you are about to see is an adaptation of the Exodus story. While artistic and historical license has been taken, we believe that this film is true to the essence, values and integrity of a story that is a cornerstone of faith for millions of people worldwide. The biblical story of Moses can be found in the book of Exodus. And I think that's a, a really helpful framing because I think it first of all gives them the scope to be able to adapt in some ways. And we're going to talk a lot about how it is in many ways a very faithful adaption. It's very meticulous, ranging from theological to historical. They are actually trying to craft the 
truth of that story. But any adaptation, and particularly an adaptation, this is also a musical. So any adaptation that's a musical, that's for kids, that's for family entertainment, will have to change in some ways in the adaptation. But that there was this real sense that they wanted to take it seriously. When I was preparing for this episode, I watched this like a 25 minute YouTube video, which is just the making of The Prince of Egypt. And at the start, they have one of the producers, Jeffrey Katzenberger, who was one of the people who founded DreamWorks. And he was talking about how this movie came to be. And it was when he was talking with his fellow producer, Steven Spielberg, about wanting to set a really serious epic tone, wanting to take animation further. And he he specifically says, which is not explicitly, but I'd say implicitly a bit of a, a jibe at Disney, like not wanting to do a fairy tale. And apparently Steven Spielberg looked at him and was just like, well, why don't we do the Ten Commandments? <laughs> yeah, I don't necessarily know the sort of religious convictions of the people who were the driving force behind this film. I know Katzenberger and Spielberg obviously come from Jewish backgrounds. And I think it really helps the story that it's not just a Christian story. It is a Jewish story and it's a like it's a Muslim story as well so I think in some ways that helps it not just be a niche quote Christian film which is something we've talked about quite a lot but the thing that I think is really exciting to just look at from a Christian point of view is in some ways this is what it looks like when a big Hollywood studio with lots of star power and lots of money behind it decides to make a Christian or a biblical story and they're being really earnest about it. Mm. (laughs) It's interesting because like you look at the films that are coming out kind of next to it at the same time you look at what Disney's outputting like the same year Mulan's coming out and then the year before you have Hercules and it's like those films are using Greek legend and cultural traditions as like a backdrop for a fantastical scenario you know and they're really playing fast and loose with kind of those those traditions and now obviously like it's not as contemporary you know like believes in in Greek gods is not something that will have like a contemporary audience but it is just interesting to see the kind of sensitivity being taken with the subject matter that might not necessarily being seen in the same way with the kind of films that are coming out at the same time and just like a totally different approach to how they they take it you know. I think that's so interesting and I think from a modern point of view I think when we look at the voice cast for Prince of Egypt we would probably say If you were making it now, you would probably cast maybe a more racially diverse group of people. I mean, it's nice that they don't whitewash the Egyptians in their actual, like, visual depiction of them, you know? Like, they're they're brown, which is nice to see, but you're right that, yeah, I think if it was made today, we would have... I mean, there's there's a couple of different backgrounds of people. I know actually a lot of the singing voices were more Middle Eastern singers. But what I would say about it is, and it was something that I cropped up in the marketing of this film when I was looking it up, was that they really build this film as the biggest named cast in any animated movie ever. So they were really (laughs) like playing for this like it's a really prestigious film they're not trying to like slip this under the rug and even the fact that they could get a really big cast there's the two main leads are Val Kilmer and Ralph Fiennes but then you've also got like Patrick Stewart you've got Michelle Pfeiffer you've got Sandra Bullock like these are still names that are still relevant today because they were big star powers Mm. and just that sense that everyone was sort of like really willing to put their name and their money to this project I just find really really interesting and like not something that I think you would actually get away with in the same way today. As a result, it also stands up today. Like, I think in any kind of secular scenario, you could say to your friends, do you want to watch The Prince of Egypt? And it's not sort of like, oh, that Christian film, you know? And I think that, like, people can kind of smell a a false Christian film that's kind of, like, trying to push a narrative a mile off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this film really doesn't fall into that category. Like, the people who are, like you were saying, the people who are fans of it, it doesn't necessarily have a a wide audience, but the people who love it really do love it. And it's not just Jews or Christians who do. Yeah, Um, yeah. I've seen definitely the reviews on IMDb. Like, the top one is, like, atheist here, I love this movie, it's my favourite movie type thing. (laughs) (laughs) which I think is great and I think it also doesn't fall into the other trap which I feel like more movies now might fall into which is adapting the source material so much that the people who it ought to appeal to it actually alienates by disregarding the integrity of the text yeah like I just keep coming back to this real sense of like earnestness about it it's just so cool to me that they would 
care so much about doing this story justice. I was reading, there was an article, which was, I think it was called An Ecumenical Prince of Egypt, which just detailed all of the lengths that they went to to reach out to different groups. So they hired this lawyer who was really well versed in civil rights conflicts between religious groups (laughs) um, to reach out to everyone that they could talk to. I think it says that more than 300 Biblical scholars, theologians, archaeologists, Egyptologists, clergy and religious leaders are said to have been contacted for the film. And the article goes on to detail. There was Muslim feedback which said that the depiction of Arabs was inflammatory and maybe to nuance it more. And they actually took that on board. I think there was one scene of bathing which like a Mormon group was like, oh, that's a bit too risque. And they changed that as well. And like there were some things they kept and some things that they were like, we're not going to change even if you think this is wrong. Like this is, we think this is right. But it was wasn't just for show and it wasn't just an email saying like oh we've reached out to you we've checked a box like there was a lot of people commenting on how they had been reached out to they gave feedback and then they were surprised that they came back and held another session with them and another session and so that there was this real sense that like it wasn't just an exercise in making sure you ticked enough boxes to say like oh it's legit we can do this but to actually try and speak to the truth and reach as many people that way which I think is so amazing like over 300 <laughs> people like that's crazy Mm-mm. you can really feel see it, it. Like, yeah because yeah. I know I know of many instances where you hear about like oh we consulted all the people and we consulted the Catholics and then you look at it and you're like mm, it, it doesn't seem like it you know like <laughs> I don't feel like you ever talked to a Catholic before making this <laughs> Uh, Yeah, I actually read an article, I think it was from like the Catholic League or something like that, which was written at the time, which says, we should support this film because they actually reached out to us and got our opinion. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the bar that we like have set for ourselves. They asked us what we thought (laughs) and they listened to the answer. (laughs) But the result is genuinely fantastic. And it's, you know, it's all of the things you want for a family film. Like there is funny parts. It is emotional. It's got great music, which I'll come to later. And then in the midst of all of that, it's also just this like amazingly beautifully told story. And I think that's maybe what we're going to get onto, which is that Robin and I were discussing how in some ways we kind of think that animation might be the sort of maybe ideal way to portray biblical stories? Yeah, 100%. Because basically, I think, particularly when we're talking about like the 90s when this came out, but also I think just overall that like, when you are depicting supernatural events in film, when you do it in a live action context, it's just very easy for it to fall into sort of fantasy tropes and to not feel authentic because that's where we're used to seeing CGI and special effects brought in in a big way is is for fantasy settings and so it kind of misses the mark sometimes it, like you want to depict those things and you want to depict those things well but just by the nature of the fact that we can't have them in the real world because they're supernatural when you bring them in through CGI against a live action background it's strange Whereas with a hand-drawn animated film, those two things are actually like the same living, breathing material that the world exists in. You know, the people walking are, are drawn the same way as these supernatural events that are depicted. And so they feel one and the same. And it's, it's it just feels like a, a context that makes those things feel exist they exist in the same place, you know? Yeah, they're coming from the same fabric of existence. Exactly. Whereas, obviously, there are plenty of examples where CG is done really well in films and it doesn't feel like a big intrusion. But there is a sense that, as a viewer, you know the human bits are real and then you know the CGI bits are not real. Yeah. And I think the fact that when everything is within this animated context, there's not that sort of division because everything is, is one animated piece. I think it just really helps. And then again, there are plenty of films. In fact, I was thinking there's some great shots in this film which have a lot of like big alabaster pillars and I'm just re-listening to The Lord of the Rings for the... I know I love Lord of the Rings, but I don't give myself a lot of time to re-listen or re-read things very often. So the fact that I'm re-listening to Lord of the Rings is very exciting to me. But the cover image for it is an illustration of the Fellowship in Moria with the big pillars everywhere. Mm. And in some ways I was just like, oh yeah, and this is 
slightly maybe a precursor to by I think only like a year or two of that Moria shot which is live action obviously but for a lot of films I don't feel like I think it's tricky to get that sense of scale and scope whereas for an animated movie you can make the people as tiny as you want and the sets as big as you want and it just doesn't yeah (laughs) like you can do Exodus and you can literally have like hundreds of thousands of extras and it's like totally achievable you know yeah (laughs) like just a scale that would be almost impossible to like actually orchestrate in live action you know yeah exactly and so there's a that sense that you can get you can very easily get the scale it doesn't like impact on your film budget at all you can just keep going bigger that's in terms of the size of the things it's it's fine and like even just a lot of these things you are able to do them in live action but I think they just really work well in animation which is like there's a lot of really beautiful use of color in this so there's like a color palette for Egypt which is very cool toned and blue and this color palette for the Hebrews and the the Midians when he's out in the desert that's very rich and earthy and red and in some ways that comes across really well when you're doing something like animation. And it's so fun because I guess when you go into a film that's called The Prince of Egypt you're like thinking sand and so you're like yellow you know and then it's Mm -hmm. so surprising and makes you see this landscape an entirely different way to kind of see it in in blue and red really throughout and I think that the use of those two colors is also very symbolic in even the dispositions of the Egyptians versus the Midians you know the Midians are full of life and vitality and embrace of kind of all all that life has to offer and the Egyptians are really very closed off in many ways quite static yes yes closed off to themselves and to the plight of the Hebrews as well that they're enslaving you know so I thought maybe we could just pick out some of our our favorite elements of the animation that we really love I know I touched on scale before but I just would love to go into some of them there's some great examples like at the start obviously like we're saying there's a lot of set pieces around the Egyptian temples and palaces and things like that and so you just have these very exaggerated, like they're based on real locations. So if you're comparing them, I mean, Egyptian architecture is very impressive and is very imposing, but they take it even a step further. So you just have these like little specks of people running around next to sphinxes and next to ginormous rows of columns and sitting into enormous statues. Just that real clear, clean size. But then you're also seeing the element, which is the Hebrews. Like it opens with this amazing song called Deliver Us, which shows the Hebrews and their part in building these amazing, clear, clean, austere kind of buildings. And they're built in a very human way, which is just people tugging on ropes and making mud for bricks. And you get that sense of the literally monumental amount of work that would go into making something like this. Um, And there's a line in one of the songs at the end, which I think some people would quibble with theologically, but I, I get it from a <laughs> from an imagery point of view. It says that like we were moving mountains before we even knew. And from a theological point of view, I think we would say that God moves the mountains. But there is that sense that like the Israelite slaves were moving mountains in the sense that they literally were moving mountains of earth in order to create these temples and these buildings. Yeah. They're also interestingly depicted in earth tones in comparison Mm -hmm. to the kind of, and I guess it's sort of like they're very much being treated as kind of non-existent or kind of like fading into the background in in comparison to the two other forces are like as as we begin with the Egyptians that they're being used as almost like a natural force to build these things that's how the the Egyptians are seeing them you know yeah yeah (laughs) they're living absolutely human workhorses. But then, you know, the scale kind of doesn't even just stop there because once Moses runs away from Egypt and enters the desert and then you have these enormous desert landscapes that are just rock and air and sand for miles and miles and they did I I know the animators went out into Death Valley to to paint even just the skies and things like that and there is that sense of scale and enormity with just the sheer landscape and then in the final third of the film we get into the miracles and you encounter god which has its own kind of majesty but even in terms of just again a sense of scale which is beyond all proportion and of course at the end we have the crossing of the red sea which is just you kind of have to see this film even just for that one shot yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) and it's like you go into the film being like okay the crossing of the red sea that's like that's what I'm here. That's what my, you know, price of admission is is really <laughs> going towards. And so that's where your expectations are set, what you're going to see. And it's just insane how 
how much it really lives up to and exceeds that in terms of just like visual spectacle and it, re- it really just captures sort of the beauty of creation and the scale and I know this is totally off topic but I was looking at um <laughs> I was drawing whales in work and I was looking at like footage of whales and people swimming a few feet away from this massive creature and I'm just like creation is just insane you know that these things actually exist and yeah, there's a whale actually in in that scene with the Red Sea, and it um yeah yeah they they just capture creation so beautifully um and so truthfully I think yeah if I can describe it which will come to nothing like as if you can describe an image it's just <laughs> but in terms of the shot there's just this very famous and incredible shot of the wall of water and this like tiny trail of people at the bottom walking across this enormous wall of water and there's sort of like a flash of lightning and you can see the inside of the wall of water illuminated as this enormous whale passes by and yeah like we said it's just this sense of scale and wonder at all like I think if you're looking for something to speak into the gifts of the Holy Spirit of wonder and awe in God's creation like this movie genuinely evokes that for me and I think it even even does that for me in the ways that it depicts God. And I think you were interested in talking about this because, of course, within the story, you have the very famous scene of the burning bush. Yeah, absolutely. And it's really like it's again, it's given a lot of gravity. It's given a lot of time to like actually really sit in that scene. And you go like so he he enters into the cave and it's uh, the first thing you kind of see is almost like the shadows of water. And so it almost like seems like you're inside an underwater aquatic cave. And then you see this bush and it's it's kind of blues and, and, and whites. And it's really otherworldly. And then the voice of God is actually Val Kilmer's voice, which is quite an interesting choice as well. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's the voice of Moses The voice speaking. Of, of Moses is speaking as God as well, which is quite an interesting choice. Because I guess the first instance in which he encounters God so, so closely is... It's supernatural and wonderful, but it's also quiet. It's take off your sandals because you were standing on holy ground and it's um, mm-hmm. it's peaceful and quiet. And there's a sense in which choosing to have his voice be kind of the voice that's also inside his own head is a very personal depiction of God as, as someone who is just so, so close to us and who knows us so well that he, he comes to us with our own voice. It's really beautiful and it um it's I think overall the the depiction of God is quite I mean it's challenging in ways and like like we were saying it's not just a, an explicitly Christian God like we see a God that you know is wrathful it doesn't shy away from the tough parts of this story as well um mm-hmm. which is you know interesting but it's really a god like it's a really a god of like a god of kind of creation I guess and a god that takes creation and kind of turns it upside down as well in a big way he he has fire that doesn't consume and he uses blood as sort of a symbol of protection he mm. he appears as a you know a serpent first to the egyptians which is you know not necessarily the the depiction that we generally expect to see god as um we generally expect serpents to be you know related to to satan um but but that's also you know from the text that that's how he he appears he appears as a staff and then turns into the serpent and it's yeah it's it's a god that is not easily controlled in both the ways that he he affects the natural world and the ways that he works supernaturally as well you know And I think they do that interaction between Moses and God, where Moses is sort of questioning and saying, like, you should pick someone else. Why would you ask me? And that kind of balance that, which is in in the biblical text, like the balance that he strikes, which is, I think it says at one point, God turns wrathful towards him because he's being hesitant. And that sense of a balance between reassurance, like, I will give you the words, I will be there with you, but also, I am God, who are you to deny me? (laughs) And I think it's really interesting, especially when compared to the Pharaoh, who was also seen as mediator between God and man. So I think that's just such a really interesting dynamic that it pulls out because the thing that the, the movie does that isn't necessarily really in the biblical text is that it really heavily bases the conflict of the story on the um, relationship that Moses has with his brother, who is the pharaoh. Or at the start of the movie is, is the prince and then is preparing to become the pharaoh and then later is the pharaoh. And the story isn't really a, a story of 
faith or belief because everyone in the story takes their faith and belief really seriously. (laughs) So it's not, it's not like that's an obstacle that has to be overcome. In fact, it's more about this clash between Moses being asked to go back to Egypt and be the destructive force on the people who raised him. Hmm this kind of brotherly clash, which isn't necessarily in the text. I think if you look at the biblical story, there's more to suggest that Moses knew that he was Hebrew and was raised because he was given a Hebrew name by the Pharaoh's daughter. So it wasn't like kept as a secret. Whereas in the in the film, they play it as a revelation that he, he ignores the plight of the Hebrews and then finds out that he is a Hebrew. And this distresses him enough for him to lash out and, and kill the Egyptian guard and then flee into the desert. It also on. plays on on the role of, I guess, father figures as well, um, which isn't because in the Bible it's the Pharaoh's daughter who who raises him, but in the film it's the Pharaoh's wife, and so he's really, like, that's his father figure in a way, and then he has sort of, when he moves out of Egypt and he joins the Midians, he has, like, this other father figure, which is his soon-to-be wife's father, and so it kind of plays on on how those fatherly roles also impact, I guess, your your relationship with God as a father as well which is kind of an interesting choice Um, definitely yeah and so there's this real duality and I I just love the way that in the moment of the burning bush that they play that interaction between God and Moses and wanting to do what's right by your people and also feeling afraid and feeling like you're not ready and there's that line which is in the bible which is I will smite Egypt with my wonders which Mm. I think it really speaks to both like the awe and the fear of God. And like you were saying, there is this now for modern audiences, fairly uncomfortable element where God is choosing to to smite the Egyptians. And we, we see that now is very unfair. And I think they do a good job in the film of like balancing out how this is a justice for the atrocity caused by the, the Egyptians. Like they do really show how the Egyptians were the ones who killed the firstborn of the Jewish children in this way that there is that sense that it's it's the denial of God that perpetuates this, which demands justice. And and yeah. that's how, how we get the plagues, which again, like the plagues are another element where it's just the combination of music and imagery is, is amazing. I think in one of the shots in the making of film that I saw, it said that there was like 17 million locusts in, in one shot. What? (laughs) Yeah, again, just that enormous sense of scale in terms of these pestilences and the the raining fire and the locusts and the gnats and the frogs that just, it feels like this very almost, with all of these big open spaces, it suddenly feels really claustrophobic where you have all of these different things happening all at once and there's Mm -hmm. kind of this feeling of no escape. And then Obviously, it concludes with the angel of death and the sequence of the Passover. Which, again, is very tastefully done with something that's, uh, you know, very serious and, and hard sometimes to square with our vision of God. But, you know, depicted as, I guess, a, a very Old Testament angel as well, in that it's it's very otherworldly. It's not a bloke with wings. It's it's kind of this, <laughs> this, uh, <laughs> this sort of... Um, gossamer kind of light that like comes out of a very dark sky and passes through the town and you have very very blue lighting and then just the contrast of the the bright crimson red of the blood across the hebrews houses as that angel kind of passes from street to street and yeah it really is like for an animated film i know i've said it and I'll say it again, it takes its time and it, it and i guess that's something that we also don't necessarily expect from western film as well we see it a lot in um kind of eastern cinema but like actually pausing and and giving something its space is something that we don't necessarily see as much as we might like to in western film and this film really does give it gives serious moments the chance to be serious um, and it doesn't play down to the fact that this is being advertised to kids so we can't can't enter into those serious or confusing or in some ways ambiguous situations. Um, Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, another interesting element of this is that sonically it is also taking a moment because there's this just been this big chorus, big booming musical moment while all the plagues are happening. And then when the angel of death comes, it is almost entirely silent except that the angel of death has this breath 
sound to it, which I think is, again, really sensitive to the Christian and Jewish material, that ruach of God, the breath of God, as the, as the life-giving and ultimately life-taking force, that the spirit and the breath are one. And, and so it, it's sort of like this searching light that comes in and takes away breath. And it's, yeah, it's a really, really powerful moment. The final sequence, which actually happens much earlier in the film, but the final sequence that I wanted to talk about from like an animation point of view was the fact that they really lean into the Egyptian artwork for this film. And so they have a lot of narrative told through hieroglyphs. So they just have them in the buildings and it records things that have happened in history and they reference them and they point to them. But there's also this sequence where Moses falls asleep and has a sort of flashback about what happened to him as a baby and how his mother had to smuggle him away from being killed and, and place him in the river. And the wider context of the other Hebrew firstborn sons being killed. And the way that it's done is through this moving hieroglyph animation sequence where it looks as if it's on a wall. And in fact, the animation interacts with like the dynamics of a wall. So if there's a pillar, they have to like go around Walk the around, pillar yeah. <laughs> and there's like still static elements of the hieroglyphs and then there's moving elements and so there's different people kind of coming in and out of it and it's this really like very ingenious way of utilizing the kind of culture that they're dealing with in order to do mm. something fairly experimental with the storytelling yeah absolutely it's funny because i think as a child you tended to see those sequences and kind of be like oh i want to go back to the bit where it looks normal again and <laughs> um it's only as an adult that you can, that I anyway find with those kind of things that you're kind of like, oh wow, like that's such a, a cool ingenious way of throwing in something there that wouldn't necessarily be expected. In yeah, and I think they're just, it's just really fun to see how they really leaned into the the types of history and culture that they were dealing with. So you have a lot of, there's scenes where their father, who at the start, the pharaoh, Seti, he's standing and you can see not one but two layers of his statues of his head behind him so you sort of see this mm. like like his head sort of getting bigger into the distance yeah he's um, literally in the shadow of his own image you know yeah. like or his own vision of himself <laughs> yeah or like Ramesses his son is then sitting in a statue of his father with the shadow of his father like coming across mm. him and like mm. it's obviously quite on the nose imagery but also just really beautifully done in imagery that you just really take joy in the fact that you're using these Egyptian cultural reference points. Yeah. I just love it. And then we've been kind of referencing it already, but I'm going to take a moment to just like talk about the music because <laughs> it is like just such a great soundtrack from start to finish. Like literally the very moment it opens, the soundtrack is already delivering amazing music. <laughs> <laughs> it's a real, yeah, limits moment, I feel like, that, that opening. Yeah, it opens with Deliver Us, which, yeah, has that very kind of um, chanted feel to it. I've got to give a shout out to my friend Zoe Critchley, who I, I had kind of talked about this a little bit with her. And then the other night I just texted her and, and just said, like, OK, give me your thoughts on Stephen Swartz. So the music is done by Stephen Swartz, who is famous for doing uh, quite a lot of religious stuff as well. In terms of theatre, he wrote the lyrics to Godspell, which I'm not that familiar with. Same with Children of Eden and a couple of other religiously themed works. And then for animated film, he has done the lyrics for Pocahontas as well as The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And obviously this. Oh, I forgot to mention he also did the lyrics for Wicked, which I think a lot of people would know him for. Um, and then the, the music was done by Hans Zimmer, who, again, I know now we sort of associate him with the Inception boom. I mean, he did the music for The Lion King. So in some ways that works really like it's a very obvious choice. But together they wrote this amazing soundtrack. But yeah, I texted my friend Zoe. So send me your thoughts on Stephen Schwartz. And she immediately sat down to write what I can only describe as a full-on essay. <laughs> um, yes! <laughs> so I am very grateful to, to you, Zoe. Thank you very much. And she makes a, a great point that if I have time to come back to this topic, it would be really interesting to do one actually just on Stephen Swartz because the interaction yep. of the way that the lyrics from The Hunchback of Notre Dame versus even like Pocahontas and that sort of cultural clash that is in Pocahontas versus the cultural clash that is in Prince of Egypt. But yeah, I think he does an amazing job. He really goes for big set piece music. In some ways, it's kind of surprisingly different to the way that 
Disney or even like typical musicals approach how music is woven into a story because it's less about someone having a very emotional moment and bursting into song or telling you what they want or what they like in song. It is actually more about a chorus of people and music being an expression of a culture and a people and as a communal thing rather than an individual thing. So you've got, as I mentioned, Deliver Us, which opens the story, which is obviously about the Jewish perspective of praying for deliverance. Then there's also some other big pieces, like like I said, the plagues, which has this clash between Ramesses and Moses on a personal level, but underneath it is the sort of chanting out of what is happening in the plagues. When Moses is in the desert, as we mentioned, he meets his father-in-law, who sings this amazing song called With Heaven's Eyes, which is definitely sung by a person, but is also very representative of the culture of that unit of people. And then the, the kind of the song at the end, which is There Will Be Miracles. And yeah, that is also just an incredibly uplifting song and very much a song of the Hebrew people at the end. And again, it's that sense of scale, because then most of the musical pieces are these big choral moments or these big orchestral moments. So there's just this sense of like, enormity to all of the the songs in the in the film and I just really love it and I think Stephen Schwartz does a really good job again I don't think he's particularly religiously affiliated I read some interviews with him I don't think he he necessarily feels particularly clearly about any one expression of faith but even like a, a very simple example, I think a lot of people know God Help the Outcasts from The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which has a line that says, I ask for nothing because I know people have less. And then in uh, The Prince of Egypt, it says, when you've got nothing, there's a lot to go around. <laughs> when all you've got is nothing, there's a lot to go around. And I just love that. And there's that sense of really understanding the humility the perspective of people who ascribe to this faith. I think he just does a really great job of actually diving into or representing both the people and their, their faith. And he also does a great job of writing complex songs for villains. Like I think if you think of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, there's a really intense song called Hellfire, which is the ultimate complex villain song. And I feel like there's a lot of elements of that in, in The Plague, which has Moses and Ramesses batting against each other and, and saying like, I will not let your people go and I, I will not bow to your Lord. Which I just think, gosh, if the animation in this film wasn't good enough, like the soundtrack all, <laughs> could almost stand on its own. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> I think that kind of fairly handily brings us into that idea of also how the art depicted in the film sort of illustrates both the philosophy and sort of vision of humanity that each of the groups has as well. In that vision of Ramsey saying, I will not let your people go, and, and Moses crying out for them to be let go. And really the visuals, I guess we're kind of seeing a lot of the glory of civilization versus the glory of creation. Mm -hmm. And in the Egyptians, we've seen a world that's, that's cast in stone. People die, but their image lives on in these towering figures. The sense of that their ideology is part of that as well, in that Ramses will not will not yield and I think his father he's talking his father before he actually takes on the role as Pharaoh and he's still his prince his father refers to him as a link in a chain um, mm -hmm. of kind of succession and that he's the weak link and he keeps saying that he's the weak link and he's going to bring this civilization to his knees due to his inferiority and it's contrasted so clearly with the kind of Midian vision which is in the lyrics and also in the, the visuals that we see of them talking about tapestries and their kind of form of art that, that we see most clearly is, you know, I am a thread in a tapestry and I'm one piece of a greater whole and I don't create the whole picture. I'm not a link in a chain, but a piece in a much bigger picture than me, but I'm not, I'm also not the one holding it all up. Yeah, and it's it's quite interesting in how also that kind of then goes on to show how their art and their civilization and their vision of beauty informs how how they treat other human beings. And I actually have an interesting quote here, and it's from, it's actually Chesterton talking about St. Francis in his, his biography of him. And I think it just really captures 
the vision of how civilization and how we create beauty and how it impacts the way that we we envision ourselves as creatures of power or creatures of weakness. So he's talking about Francis as sort of the gesture of Christ and sort of embracing his role of, of being sort of a fool for Christ and, and being small. And he's talking literally about St. Francis like standing on his head like a gesture. And so he says, there is a Latin and literal connection for the very word dependence only means hanging. It would make vivid the scriptural text which says that God has hung the world upon nothing. If St. Francis had seen in one of his strange dreams the town of Assisi upside down, it need not have differed in a single detail from itself, except in being entirely the other way around. But the point is this, that whereas the normal eye, the large masonry of its walls or the massive foundations of its watchtowers and its high citadel would make it seem safer and more permanent, The moment it was turned over, the very same weight would make it seem more helpless and more in peril. It is but a symbol, but it happens to fit the psychological fact. St. Francis might love his little town as much as before, or more than before, but the nature of the love would be altered even in being increased. He might see and love every tile on the steep roofs or every bird on the battlements but he would see them all in a new and divine light of eternal danger and dependence. Instead of being really proud of his strong city because it could not be moved, he would be thankful to God Almighty that it had not been dropped. He would be thankful to God for not dropping the whole cosmos like a vast crystal to be shattered into falling stars. Perhaps St. Peter saw the world so when he was crucified head downwards. And I think what I was going back to earlier on, and Chesterton to speak there, but um, what I was saying about the God who kind of turns everything upside down in this film is that really the, this magnificent civilization that seems indestructible in the opening half of the film that the Egyptians have sort of built up is just brought to its knees by the glory and majesty of this God of creation who's able to literally move mountains in a way that the Egyptians can only do by enslaving a people. And I think that's kind of at the heart of, of what it's saying is really there's just something so much bigger than us and in a way the Midians are able to accept that in a way and so are able to move with the will of God in a way that the Egyptians can't because they are so so static. Yeah, absolutely. I love that, gosh. I mean, Chester <laughs> is always amazing. And Phoebe has been begging me to read that Life of St. Francis for a while and it is floating to the top of my to-read list. It's going to happen really soon, I promise, guys. But yeah, that was amazing. And I think you're kind of just spot on with that. The thing I love about the Midians is not only just the fabric, which again, in the song, like he makes it really explicit that you are important, but you mightn't get to see how important you are. And it says that the thread is vibrantly coloured but that you just don't know how important it is until you see it in the context of the tapestry and Mm. and then it extends the metaphor in lots of other ways it says the stones at the base of the mountain are not more important than the stone that is at the top that wider context and so there's that real sense that the medians really understand things relationally and intertwined and I think like you said there's a couple of other elements they show this in like they're really into music and dance and there's that sense of those expressions of culture being ethereal and in the moment and not carved into stone and you know I'm not trying to say that civilization building is bad because obviously (laughs) (laughs) I've been to Egypt and I've been to lots of other places with ancient architecture I mean and as a Catholic I mean you go to Rome and you see the amazing churches and things like that that are built and it's not that that's inherently bad but I think it, it goes to what you were saying about the dignity of people that like it can't be done at the expense of the dignity of people the, the civilization and the way that you view beauty really has to inform the way that you love, you know, like, because that, that's what beauty is in service of love and it's in service of the good and, and seeing things truly. And so if if the beautiful is actually clouding your ability to see other people as human beings worthy of dignity, then there's something missing there. And I think mm-hmm. the film is kind of in a way putting it's simplifying things you know by by putting it in such stark contrast but i think even if it's obviously not that simple when we actually look at the real culture of egypt or the real civilization of egypt in the context of the film i think it 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 does a really good job of laying that out very clearly Yeah. yeah and in some ways i think it's interesting to think about obviously there is still an egyptian culture i'm not saying that but in some ways the culture of the ancient egypts and the pharaohs 
did come to an end despite all of their big monument buildings, whereas the oral culture of the Hebrews ended up living on in a much more easily recognisable way in, in modern world, which I just think it, it's one of those things where you kind of have to just trust God to continue on your legacy. Yeah. <laughs> a little and it's bit kind more. Of, it's one of the nice things in that like the Hebrews themselves don't really get a chance to have a kind of a depiction of art in the film. Like we see the contrast of the Egyptians, the Midians and the Hebrews are the people who are just totally subsumed into the Egyptian culture as, as a workforce, yeah. um, a slave workforce. But I guess something that's kind of nice in an intertextual way is that we are seeing also this animated film which is telling their story and in a way their story, they are the, the protagonists of this story. And so though they don't get to show their art in the film, the film itself is art dedicated to them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I was thinking that a little bit with the music in that it's only at the very end that they get any depiction of having any kind of culture. And that's when they've been freed from Egypt and their musical instruments appear and they start singing within the context of the film. They're actually like outwardly singing. It's their voice and it's their culture breaking through, but they don't actually yeah. get to have a representation of that till the end. So I just love the way that the music of the film is their voice and is their culture in a way that gets yeah. to be seen despite the fact that within the context of the film they've had so much of their culture taken from them at that point uh, i think according to the bible they had been in egypt for like 430 years or something yeah. like that and then it goes on to like you were saying in terms of turning it upside down i think it's interesting that the majesty of god's miracles particularly the parting of the red sea in some ways dwarfs anything that was achieved by the the Egyptians yeah. when it when God is receiving right praise that we see an even greater expression of majesty and sometimes coming just from creation itself. So <laughs> that's our that's our hour-long rant about why <laughs> the Prince of Egypt is great and everyone should watch it. Uh, funny enough, we um did this like earlier in the week, like we we rewatched the film earlier in the week and we just realized today that it's actually gone off Netflix. <laughs> we were speculating that it might be due to the fact that it is Lent and so they're anticipating people might actually just be willing more to more inclined to buy it yeah. like with their money rather than on their streaming site, so they've just taken it all off. So yeah, it's worth it though. <laughs> it's worth it. <laughs> yeah, if you can yeah. if you can get a copy of it somewhere, yeah, I would definitely yeah, recommend. Yeah. I feel like it's it's a lot more sort of accessible than, say, A Passion of the Christ. I know, again, I'm sure people are going to ask me at the end of this episode, have I watched The Chosen yet? And I'm really sorry, guys, I haven't watched it yet. <laughs> um, I have said that I plan to watch it for Lent, but maybe, Robin, you can... Have, have you seen yes, it? Yes, I have seen The Chosen, and yeah, I really love it. I think particularly the depiction of... Jesus is really exceptional but like across the board there's some really really interesting takes as to how they choose to represent some of the disciples uh, in a very human way they make them very very real I I'm particularly fond of Matthew who's kind of he's depicted as being maybe a little bit on like the autistic spectrum but they play with it really really beautifully he's a he's a wonderful character but yeah also just the depiction of Jesus is, is one of my favorites Maybe right. my favorite depiction of Jesus ever, and so that in and of itself should be should be a selling point. My yeah. father is like the biggest proponent of the chosen ever. Like literally, every person who he talks to, he will he will find a way in the conversation to encourage them to watch it. So, in my father's honor, I will encourage you all to go out and seek the chosen because it's worth <laughs> it's worth seeking out. <laughs> Amazing. I mean, like in terms of taking my own advice, I had said Lent would be a good time to watch the chosen. And then I got a little bit far behind on my deadlines this month. So hopefully with it before we hit Easter, I will go and watch the chosen. But equally, I would also encourage everyone to go watch Prince of Egypt. I feel like it's a really good, accessible, biblical and like Lenten appropriate Christian film. And a great example of a Christian and a Judeo-Christian story told seriously by people who are at the, the top of their game and that do manage to make it accessible and meaningful for everyone of all kinds of backgrounds. The other thing that I was just going to say is in the last episode, we sort of recommended maybe dipping back into the Tiso episode that I did with Shane, which is the painter who painted the life of Christ. He also painted some Old Testament scenes. And in some ways, I kind of feel like 
Prince of Egypt is maybe kind of the spiritual descendant of the Tissot yeah. paintings. Yeah. So, you know, maybe take those together. I feel like, <laughs> you know. You'd be very happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> so, especially in the way that it depicts the sort of richness of the even like fabric history of the the Hebrews in it, I think is very appropriate. So I just think, yeah, Tissot, Prince of Egypt, all great things to explore this Lent. And the only thing left I have to ask is, Robin, what are you enjoying at the moment? So I'm gonna I'm gonna bring it full circle, and I'm gonna actually say that what I'm enjoying is actually it's a four part musical EP um, by a band called the Arcadian Wild. And just entirely keeping in the biblical theme, it's actually about the story of Eden, Adam and Eve being created, the the fall, and basically their whole narrative across four four pieces that go through four seasons, spring, summer, autumn, and winter. And um, yeah, it's an example of just very tastefully done Christian music that is drawing on the richness of biblical texts in a way that's, uh, yeah, really nice and, and they sound good too. <laughs> Amazing. I'll have to check them out. I haven't heard of them, yeah. so I'll it's, be... It's called, I think the piece is called Principum? Yeah. So. Awesome. That's great. I am going to say that I have recently finished the audiobook of Dubliners by James Joyce. It's a series of short stories about various snapshots of views of Dublin life. And I had read several of the short stories when I was at university. At the time, I could definitely appreciate that they were incredibly well written but I didn't come away with like a big desire to seek more of Joyce but I think as we've been in lockdown and as I've been doing my little walk around around the same block over and over again I've just been thinking more about Dublin and about the landscape of Dublin and it made me want to revisit that and so I got the audiobook which is read by Andrew Scott who's an amazing actor and he does a really great job for me I think it made a lot of difference because as someone who doesn't speak in a Dublin accent I think it really brings the rhythm of the conversation and the the language of Joyce to life for me which helps me connect to it a bit more the experience of listening to it was really impactful for me and like I think because I, you know, there was one time when I just walked past a particular street sign and I was like, huh, that's an interesting street name. And within the next 24 hours, I had listened to him say that street name on the, oh, <laughs> on the audio book. I love that. And the, the big reason I wanted to revisit it is the final story in, in Dubliners is called The Dead. And it centers on this Christmas or rather little Christmas party that happens in a particular Georgian house in Dublin. And that house is near enough to where I live and is often on my walking route and they're threatening to turn it into a hostel at the moment so <laughs> I, I thought I'd better listen to to it and like have that moment of encountering the story in real life which is very very cool and that was one of the stories I had read when I was at uni and I knew that was the one that had kind of stayed with me the most so it was really nice to to revisit that one so while I again with Joyce I don't think he's my go-to author he's not someone that I came away like raving about I can absolutely now even better appreciate the skill and craft that he brings to his writing. And it is very interesting to be in the space that it's written about and hear it being talked about as you're sort of walking around that space. Yeah, I imagine that's incredible. So I'm going to recommend the Dubliners audiobook. And other than that, like we've been saying for the past couple of episodes, reach out, follow us on the various social media accounts, Instagram and Twitter. And like I said, people have been reaching out. It's been great. It's lovely to hear from you guys. And thanks so much for listening. And we'll talk to you again next time. Goodbye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.